Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, way too much, and I mean, I mean way too much, about Donald Trump this week, both in the world and here in the broadcast, leavening it um, in every way with remembrance of some of the range of amazing work by the late George Martin. But before all of that, we're not number one. No, we're not. The United States is dead last in basic skills solving. Well, who needs that? Among the 18 industrial countries taking part in a test on literacy, numeracy, and digital problem solving. Well, you just uh, go ahead and restart, reboot your computer, don't you? The, no the results come from the Program for the International Assessment for Adult Competency. Tested thousands of adults aged 16 to 74. According to the Wall Street Journal, the countries that scored the highest on the problem solving with technology criteria were... You can recite them along with me by this point. Japan, Finland, Sweden, and Norway. The dang socialists. What the hell? It's a conspiracy by Bernie. That's what I... Well, except for the Japanese. Poland scored second to last. Just above the good old USA. USA, USA, Poland, Poland, Poland. One stark revelation is about four-fifths of unemployed Americans cannot figure out a rudimentary problem in which they have to spot an error when data is transferred from a two-column spreadsheet to a bar graph. Uh, I, I, there's, I, I didn't even... They, Americans are far less adept at dealing with numbers than the average of their global peers. The average is where you mix the numbers, rent... When the original study was published by the OECD three years ago, then-Secretary of Education Arne Duncan said, these findings should concern us all. He's, he's gone now. The new report provides data on 16- to 34-year-olds. Even workers with college degrees and graduate or professional degrees don't stack up favorably against their international peers with similar education levels. Back in the 1970s, the U.S. had the most educated workforce in the world. That's called progress. We're not number one. Hello, welcome to the show. Treat me. 
From the edge of America, I'm Harry Shearer. More about the homeless in a moment. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. First of all, news of our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. They are going ahead with more executions, some beheadings. Yes, our friends do beheadings, too. Weddings, funerals, beheadings. We play at them all. Uh, But they're up to something else. Are our friends in Saudi Arabia, besides a remarkable way of um, executing people? The largest dairy producer in Saudi Arabia is running out of water to grow cattle feed. And they've gone shopping for a new place to find water. Where would you look? Louisiana? No. California. Almarai is the name of the company a dairy giant in Saudi Arabia. California, you may have noticed, is suffering its worst drought in recorded history, but that didn't stop Almarai. The company announced earlier this year it had paid $31.8 million. That's real money for almost 1,800 acres of land near Blythe. Yeah, I've been through Blythe. There, When it wasn't a drought in California... It was a drought in Blythe, if you see what I'm saying. It's in the southeastern corner of California. We call it a desert. The uh, reason the company bought the 1,800 acres of land near Blythe was to grow alfalfa, known as lucerne in some parts of the world. I didn't know that. Almarai will grow the crop using water diverted from the Colorado River because there's so much of that these days. Then... They'll ship the alfalfa, once it's grown, back to Saudi Arabia to feed Almariza estimated one million dairy cows. Those have got to be contented cows. Helping to ensure it remains the number one dairy producer in the nation of 30 million people. Yes, it sounds like a nutty idea. Almost as nutty as growing cotton and rice in the Central Valley of California, which is parched, except for imported water. For Adam Keats, a senior attorney at the advocacy group Center for Food Safety, this highlights everything that's wrong with globalization. It results in exporting California water in the form of alfalfa, he says. It also creates enormous carbon emissions to transport heavy, bulky animal feed, oh, this alfalfa, to the other side of the world. But you know those executioners need milk. Our freedom-loving fr- and butter, our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia, and now, ladies and gentlemen... 
News of the warm, won't you? Well, the headline at News of the Warm this week is that the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere rose 3.05 parts per million last year, the largest year-to-year increase ever recorded, according to NOAA. The fourth year in a row that CO2 concentrations grew by more than two parts per million, said a head scientist at NOAA. Carbon dioxide levels are increasing faster than they have in hundreds of thousands of years. Take that, Neanderthals. Dateline Corvallis, Oregon, a new study suggests that U.S. antitrust laws could hamper the efforts of companies to collaborate on sustainable and socially responsible business practices, even though consumers and businesses may increasingly value them. What? But the free market... The public and many businesses are worried about natural resource limitations and the threat of climate change. Current antitrust laws don't fit with today's global concerns. That's the opinion of Inara Scott, an attorney assistant professor in the College of Business at Oregon State. Quick, are those the ducks or the beavers? Text me. When it comes to the... I'm not here. When it comes to the environment, we're used to thinking of companies as part of the problem, she says. She studies environmental law issues, but today a lot of the companies want to be part of the solution. She says they want to become more socially responsible and drive sustainability for themselves and the consumer. She says the question for them becomes, how do I promote better environmental practices without losing market share? Antitrust laws alone may not completely prevent businesses from collaborating, but the ways in which the laws have been interpreted and applied over time has had a chilling effect on businesses, she says. That would be the only recorded effect on businesses of the antitrust laws in about 50 years, I would think. Businesses do not want to risk even the appearance of impropriety, she says. She must be a a duck, because beavers have their heads above water sometimes. Deadline Washington, humans have triggered the last 16 record-breaking hot years experienced on Earth up through 2014. With our impact on the global climate going as far back as 1937, a new study finds. It suggests that without human-induced climate change, recent hot summers and years would not have occurred. The researchers also found this effect has been masked until recently in many areas of the world by the wide use of industrial aerosols, which have a cooling effect on temperatures. So gals, use more hairspray today, won't you? Everywhere we look, the climate change signal for extreme heat events is becoming stronger, says a climate extremes researcher at the University of Melbourne and lead author of the study, recent record-breaking hot years globally were so much outside natural variability, he says they were almost impossible without global warming. Researchers examined weather events that exceeded the range of natural variability and used climate modeling to compare these events to a world without human-induced greenhouse gases. This was published. Well, it's accepted for publication in Geophysical Research Letters. Still time to get your copy. Record-breaking hot years attributable to climate change globally, 1937, 1940, 1941, 1943, 44, 80, 81, 87, 88, 90, 95, 97, 98, 2010, and 2014. In Australia, he says, our research shows the last six record-breaking hot years and the last three record-breaking hot summers were made more likely by the human influence on the climate. He didn't use that accent. 
Aerosols in high concentration reflect more heat into space, thereby cooling temperatures. However, when those aerosols are removed from the atmosphere, warming returns rapidly. So gals keep using the hairspray. In regards to a human-induced climate change signal, said the researcher, Australia was the canary in the coal mine for the rest of the world. I thought it was the kookaburra in the coal mine, but that's just me. For the first time, scientists have looked at the net balance of the three major greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide, methane, and nitrous oxide. <laughs> For every region of Earth's land masses, they found surprisingly that human-induced emissions of methane and nitrous oxide from ecosystems overwhelmingly surpass the ability of the land to soak up carbon dioxide emissions. So the terrestrial biosphere is now a net contributor to climate change. That means the stuff on land. The results are published in Nature. It revises our understanding of how human activity contributes to global warming, and not for the better. News of the Warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now, news of Superbug. We can't sweep your butt beneath the rug. You're screwing up all kinds of drugs. News of superbugs. Everyday Southern California hospitals unleash millions of gallons of raw sewage. They can't cook it? What the? Into municipal sewers. The muck flows miles to one of the region's sewage plants. Not what you're thinking. It's an actual industrial facility where it's treated with the rest of the area's waste and then released as supposedly clear water into the Pacific Ocean. Scientists at the EPA recently announced they discovered a lethal superbug the same one that caused outbreaks at UCLA and two other Los Angeles area hospitals in the sewage of one of those plants. No names, please. EPA scientists did not tra test treated wastewater flowing out of the plant to determine whether it still contained CRE, carbapenem-resistant enterobacteriase, bacteriaceae. But a growing number of studies show sewage plants can't kill the superbugs. The facilities instead serve as, quote, a luxury hotel, unquote, for drug-resistant bacteria, a place where they thrive and grow stronger, says one of the scientists studying the problem. Pedro Alvarez, he and other researchers say the failure of sewage plants to eliminate the dangerous bacteria is one way they may be spreading from hospitals into the wider environment. Chlorine is, not just, is just not doing it, he said, of the treatment used by most plants. The fear is that healthy people otherwise not at risk from the bacteria, including swimmers at the beach, could be infected. Already, officials are worried about the surprising number of people sickened with CRA who have not recently visited a medical facility. It's up to 8%. Hospitals aren't breaking the laws by releasing the sewage. Deemed the nightmare bacteria by federal officials, CRE survives nearly all antibiotics. It kills as many as half of its victims. Government officials, including the guys at the Centers for Disease Control, say they made no recommendations to hospitals so far about the treatment of sewage that may harbor CRE. The prevention control of CRE is an evolving process, says Melissa Brower at the CDC, meaning, we don't know. Anytime an official uses evolving, a, they're not referring to species, and B, they mean we haven't gotten to it yet. Researchers have tried for years to raise the alarm about hospital sewage. Yeah, but I'm eating. 
The sludge includes not just waste from patients suffering from drug-resistant infections, but also high levels of the antibiotics that are prescribed to treat them. As the sewage mixes, you've been to a sewage mixer? They are fat. The antibiotics kill off weaker bacteria, leaving the more lethal ones to reproduce and thrive. They reproduce rapidly, in fact, and different species can swap genes. Those parties are great. Transferring their ability to withstand the, dr- the drugs, thereby becoming superbugs. Uh, it's, it's, all, it's all good. And let's turn now to our friends of the United States Army Corps of Engineers, whose motto, as you know, is let us try. What are they trying this week? Well, the United States has now spent more money reconstructing Afghanistan than it did rebuilding Europe at the end of World War II, according to the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction. Billions, he says, have been squandered on projects that were either useless or substandard or lost to waste, corruption, and systemic abuse. Included $34 million on a soybean program for a country that doesn't need soybeans. They didn't grow them. They didn't eat them. There was no market for them. Yet we thought it was a good idea. These problems could have been foreseen, says the Inspector General. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, here we go, built 2,000 buildings to be used as barracks, medical clinics, and fire stations by the Afghan National Army as part of a a billion-and-a-half-dollar program. When two fires in 2012 revealed that around 80% of these structures did not meet international building regulations for fire safety, the IG said he was troubled by the, quote, arrogant, unquote, response from a senior official of the Corps of Engineers, Major General Michael Eyre, Eyre, commanding general of the Transatlantic Division, said the risk of fire was acceptable because, quote, the typical occupant populations for these facilities are young, fit Afghan soldiers, unquote. He said these recruits, quote, have the physical ability to make a hasty retreat during a developing situation, unquote. The uh, inspector general said those comments showed a really poor attitude toward our allies. It was an unbelievable arrogance, and I'm sorry to say that about a senior officer. Yeah, but he's in the Army Corps of Engineers. If he didn't, if he didn't do arrogance... Decades ago, the federal government wiped out thriving Native American settlements along the Columbia River to make way for three dams. Villages were replaced with 31 designated encampments. Deplorable conditions, according to the Portland Oregonian, can be found at nearly all of them. The sites that are considered the best for fishing, which is what the Native Americans did and still try to do, are overcrowded, unsanitary, and unsafe. Only one of them has a working high-pressure fire spigot connecting to the Columbia. But they're young and fit. Electricity is scarce at all of the sites, prompting residents to patch together webs of extension cords that crisscross gravel paths connected to slapdash housing made of plywood and tarps. Often these cords lie in puddles after a rain. When the dams were being built by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, federal officials promised adequate permanent housing for the tribes that fish for salmon in the Columbia, including the Nez Perce. That promise has yet to materialize. Federal officials in the 1970s began to painstakingly relocate several predominantly white towns that were in the path of the dams, but none of the centuries-old Native American settlements received the same treatment. It took the federal government 
20 years after the first dam opened to designate even the first temporary fishing spots for tribal use. Three years ago, the Army Corps office in Portland publicly acknowledged it never fulfilled its duty to find permanent housing for tribal fishing families displaced by the dams, which it constructed. No infrastructure has been put in place for year-round living. Only a handful of permanent houses have been built to help compensate for a lost way of life for thousands of tribal members. The Corps did set up a fund in the 1990s to help pay for maintenance of the camps. At the rate things are going, it will be depleted in about six years, 30 years ahead of schedule. We understand there are some terrible living conditions there, said the Corps of Engineers Portland District spokeswoman Diana Friedland. Well, understanding is the first step towards forgetting. Let us try, ladies and gentlemen, the United States Army Corps of Engineers. You know, part of the remarkable career of George Martin was that he sometimes produced more than one artist doing the same song. It has been a hard day's night, and I have been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log, but when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. You know I work all day to get you money to buy you things. And it's worth it just to hear you say you are going to give me everything. That's why I love to come home. Because when I get you alone, you know I feel okay. When I'm home, everything seems to be right. When I'm home, Feeling you, holding me tight, tight. It's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night. I should be sleeping like a log. But when I get home to you, I find the things that you do will make me feel all right. I was alone, I took a ride, I didn't know what I would find there Another road where maybe I could see another kind of mind there Ooh, did I suddenly see you? Ooh, did I tell you I need you? You knew I wanted just to hold you And had you gone, you knew in time We'd meet again for I had told you Ooh, you were meant to be near me Ooh, and I want you to hear me Say we'll be together every day 
can I do? What can I be? When I'm with you, I want to stay there. If I'm true, I'll never leave. And if I do, I know the way there. Ooh, and I suddenly see you. Ooh, did I tell you I need you? Every single day of my life. From the home of the homeless, this is Le Show. Remember the blimp, the big army blimp, <clears throat> got loose from its moorings and uh, floated fairly close to the ground for a good, good few miles, entertaining some people? Well, the army has asked Congress to let it spend another $27.2 million to keep the program alive, the Joint Land Attack Cruise Missile Defense Elevated Netted Sensor, acronymed down to JLENS. The service argues it would be cheaper to keep the exercise moving on its three-year operational schedule than it would to delay it an additional year. This according to DefenseNews.com. If the Army is unable to stay on schedule to finish the effort in fiscal 2017, it would cost an additional $39 million. The... Uh, JLN system was undergoing a three-year operational exercise. It's capable of tracking swarming boats and vehicles and detecting and tracking cruise missile threats. It can see all the way from Norfolk, Virginia to Boston. The exercise is meant to decide the fate of the program, whether to keep it permanently moored in Maryland or to send it back to the Moors, or whether the Army decides to buy more than just the two systems it now has. After that embarrassing incident last fall, the fate of the system was in question. The controversial surveillance blimp program, though, will fly again, according to Defense News, after investigations discovered that Jalen's didn't escape due to one mistake or a single design flaw. That's not the reason that it got loose. No, it was a combination of designs, human error, and procedural issues. So let's press on, shall we? <laughs> the Jalen system funding was cut by $30 million. In the current defense spending bill, the cut was made due to a test schedule delay. So, onward and uh, sideways, boys. The um, the name must be mentioned now. We're halfway into the broadcast. I've succeeded in, aside from at the very beginning, not mentioning the T word, but here we go. Uh the week, political week, was just in the United States, which is dominated by the big TV celebrity turned politician. Imagine that. TV celebrity gets TV coverage. How does that happen? First, there were the primaries on Tuesday, but then there was the debate on Thursday night. This followed the debate a week earlier, which had been slimed by almost everybody, including Republicans for its uh, lack of decorum. That was the debate, you may remember, where Donald Trump 
defended not just the size of his hands, but of other more pendular parts of his body. So this Thursday debate was judged by everybody on CNN to have been more substantive. As a matter of fact, if you missed the debate, you could watch CNN for the following hour and a half and hear people say this was a more substantive debate about every two and a half minutes. So it must have been true. Then, Friday morning, Dr. Ben Carson, who'd pulled out of the race for the nomination a few days earlier, surprised Dr. Ben Carson by endorsing Donald Trump. We'll get back to that in a moment. Then, of course, Friday evening, there was the rally that was supposed to have been held in Chicago, an 11,000-seat, as I understand it, arena. 25,000 26,000 people were uh, registered to attend by the Trump campaign. There was a uh, protest planned. It was planned. Imagine that. They printed signs. Donald Trump on Saturday derogated the protesters for, having hand, for ha- not having hand-marked, hand-lettered signs. It was a mark of some sort of conspiracy that they had, you know, a printer in the office. His signs are printed. Anyway, the rally was canceled. Donald Trump said on the evening, on the Friday evening, that he had done so at the advice of the Chicago Police Department. It didn't get that widely reported, but fairly early following that announcement, the Chicago Police Department, not any stranger to its own scandals, denied that it had consulted with Trump and advised him to postpone the rally. I know, hard to believe, isn't it? Back to Ben Carson in his uh, remarks explaining explaining his um, endorsement of Donald Trump. Dr. Ben Carson delivered this diagnosis. First of all, I've come to to know uh, Donald Trump over the last few years, there are two different Donald Trumps. There's the one you see on the stage, and there's the one who's very uh, cerebral, sits there and considers things very carefully. Never one to let a compliment pass by, unsupported by his own testimony. Uh, Trump then weighed in with this. I'm a thinker, and I have been a thinker. And perhaps people don't think of me that way because you don't see me in that forum. But I am a thinker. I thought it was very nice what Ben said, actually, because uh, it is another side of me. I'm a very deep thinker. So the good news is, ladies and gentlemen, if the presidential campaign doesn't work out, there's always an alternative career path. The universe. It is always a fascination for people. Even now in this age of science and incredible knowledge, It almost seems as if the more we know, the more mysteries we discover. Take, for example, dark matter. Science tells us that most of the universe is comprised of stuff we can't see, touch, feel, or hear, or discern by any other means as of yet. To ponder that enigma is truly to encounter on the most profound level the idea that our consciousness itself is not up to the task of deciphering the place where we live. It's humbling and it's intriguing. So join me, Donald Trump, this week for deep thoughts 
My guests will be three good friends of mine, Vince McMahon of World Wrestling Entertainment, Dr. Ben Carson, and former boxing promoter Don King. Deep thoughts this week on your local public television station. Oh, and please give, because I don't happen to.
Now, news from outside the bubble. The refuse collection industry in the United Kingdom is increasingly concerned about the rising number of people sleeping in what they call dustbins, which we would call trash receptacles, an unexpected, con an unexpected consequence of the rise in homelessness. The industry has issued safety guidance to truck drivers, bin lorry drivers, they call them over there, over how to prevent homeless people from being crushed in compaction units in the trucks. This is from The Guardian. Figures collected by one of the UK's largest waste management firms, Biffa, reveal the staff discovered 31 people sleeping in bins in 2014, 93 last year, 175 already this year. It's this March. Across the UK, 11 people have been killed in the past five years because of sleeping in bins, most of them crushed to death. These are homeless people. The more homeless people we get, the more people need to find shelter in waste containers. It is a massive social and economic problem, said the spokesperson, the health and safety spokesperson for the trash collection business. Everyone is acutely aware of the homelessness situation, he says. Our drivers are faced with this on a daily basis. It is massive. No one wants to be responsible for the injury or death of another person every time it happens, he says. It sends a shockwave through the entire industry. Large waste recycling bins often may seem attractive places to sleep in desperate circumstances because they offer privacy as well as protection from the elements. We've all read the stories about homeless people being spat on and kicked. The bins provide security, says the spokesperson for the industry. Drivers reach in and try to move waste around. They will knock on the side of the bin, walk around and shout, but they can't look all the way down to the bottom of the bins, he said. In more than 40% of the reported incidents, the individual was not discovered by collection crews until the process of depositing the waste bins in the crushing apparatus began. Says a spokesman for an agency responsible for following this, it's becoming more widespread if you're homeless and have nowhere to go for the night. Sleeping in a recycling container with paper and card is a more appealing prospect than seeking refuge in a container with food waste. This is explaining that part of the rise in numbers of people sleeping in these containers is, as happened in the last decade, the growth in the paper recycling business. Drivers reported a spike in people sleeping in bins during the warmer spring months, said the official from the trash collection industry. His organization has begun to work with homelessness charities to ensure that people are aware of the risks, then seek more suitable alternatives. Unquote. Good luck with that. Well, thank goodness we in the United States don't have a homelessness problem, or we'd be used from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Um, well, the media practitioners so love to anticipate events. It's easier than reporting them. So they've been anticipating since Super Tuesday that Donald Trump is the inevitable 
victor of the Republican presidential nomination. This is after eight months of saying it couldn't ever happen because they wanted to be on the safe side of that one, too, ahead of it. You know, if, if you report, you have to get out of that office. Predicting, you can sit down. So this is the era in which Donald Trump now blames the protesters for, uh, at, at his rally for violating the First Amendment rights of him and his supporters. Last time I looked, the First Amendment protected free speech rights against invasion or intrusion or depredation by the federal government, not by other protesters. That's, I probably need new glasses to read the cut. Well, I don't have glasses. So in any case, as he uh, glides towards this now predicted inevitability, it struck me that he still needs a campaign song. That's my band. I own them. They love me. Space for my name. Make way for my hair. Can you believe the incredible crowds I attract? Believe me, you know I went to Wharton. That's an actual fact. Upset the Chinese. The Chinese. Taking straight, I'll do it. It's just my greatness that makes me so great. Now I finally get to build some history. I can't believe I'm me. Was. My events are the biggest any human has seen. The networks call me, actually I call them, but when I do call them, they call me a ratings machine. So don't be stupid, cause you know that I'm smart. Disgusting, but I'm nice in my heart. I'm a guy with a self made pedigree. That's me, and I can't believe I'm me. Trumpets out of here. Those are Bernie's trumpets. Get out of my way. Get out of my face. 
easy to keep up with my pace. I'm already gone. I cherish the women. You know I've collected a few. The Mexicans love me. And I do too. Such class. I brag on erections and I kick major ass. Who says a press can't rule by decree? Not me. When Congress believes, you gotta believe. Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, these are the guys inside the federal government of the United States that are supposed to be independent observers of things that go wrong. They're loved, aren't they? The United States Postal Service officials are probing concerns about methane level detection at a Pontiac, Michigan site where five workers have allegedly died in the last two years. These deaths reported in a complaint are not believed to be tied to the problems with the methane detection system at the Michigan Metroplex Processing and Distribution Center, but the Postal Service Office of Inspector General is calling for, quote, immediate action to address the issue. The Metroplex is on a site previously used as a vehicle manufacturing plant that included a foundry and is now considered a brownfield. When the Postal Service built the facility, a gas venting system, according to the Detroit News, was installed... Inside and under its foundation, a detection system placed in various enclosed spaces is designed to detect and alert personnel of any seepage and accumulation of methane. A couple of years ago, the Postal Service took over the system's maintenance from a vendor that installed it. Based on our observations and review of the system logbook, the uh, system has not been functioning properly since March of last year. So it's a year. Maintenance personnel have reported issues with the sensors that detect methane levels. Workers have filed complaints at the National Postal Mail Handlers Union local. The Office of Inspector General has recommended the detection system be reviewed periodically to resolve any issues. Oh, you mean more than once? And newly released emails indicate that former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton and her top staff were involved in the selection process for the State Department's internal watchdog, according to the Wall Street Journal. That watchdog position ultimately went unfilled throughout her four-year tenure as Secretary of State. No Inspector General during her time in office. From the Hill, newspaper of Capitol Hill, the chairman of Hillary's presidential campaign, John Podesta, says there are serious questions about the integrity of the Inspector General who is there now at the John Kerry-led State Department. It, the inspector general there is locked in an increasingly in contentious, contentious fight with Clinton's campaign on a host of issues, including her use of the private email account 
has reportedly also subpoenaed the Clinton Foundation. Buzzer, buzzer, buzzer. For documents related to charity projects and is investigating close Clinton aide Huma Abedin's, Abedin's work. Abedin? Abedin? Her work as a special government consultant while she worked at the State Department. A source within the Inspector General's office at State contacted the Hill claiming that the office has grown increasingly partisan, accusing it of having an anti-Clinton bias. That would be in a State Department that reports to a Democratic president. News of Inspectors General, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, the Apologies of the Week. The day before her birthday, Chantille Allen went to Joe's Crab Shack in suburban, well, it's Roseville, Minnesota. For dinner, she was confronted with a disturbing image. As she and her friend sat down, a picture embedded in the table caught her eye. It was an old photograph of a person on a platform standing under a gallows facing a large crowd in what appeared to be a town square. It was captioned, Hanging in Grossbeck, Texas. A cartoon bubble above the individual about to be hanged in 1895 read, quote, All I said was that I didn't like the gumbo. <laughs> Alan and her friend, who were both African-American, searched for the photo online. They found the photo depicted a lynching. Friends talked to a manager about their concerns. She said the manager told him he will remove the table from the restaurant and apologized. Yes, this is suburban Minneapolis. The head of the NAACP there said she believes someone deliberately placed the image inside of the table and is another example of racism still alive in the U.S. Ignite Restaurant Group, Joe's Crab Shack's parent company, said in a statement, We understand one of the photos used in our table decor at our location in Roseville, Minnesota, was offensive. We take this matter very seriously, and the photo in question was immediately removed. We sincerely apologize to our guests who were disturbed by the image. We look forward to continuing to serve the Roseville community. Come for the lynching, stay for the crabs. Dateline New York, the front man of the band whose concert was targeted in the Paris attacks, apologized on Friday for alleging that the club's security guards were involved in the attack, saying he was struggling with trauma. I humbly beg forgiveness from the people of France, the staff and security of the Bataclan, my fans, my family, friends, and anyone else hurt or offended by the absurd accusations I made said Jesse Hughes, singer and guitarist of the Eagles of Death Metal. My suggestions that anyone affiliated with the Bataclan played a role in the events of November 13th are unfounded and baseless, and I take full responsibility for them, he said. He had said in an interview with Fox Business, he had suspicion on the guards of the Bataclan, suggesting that some had been involved in the attack. Ethiopia's prime minister has apologized for the deaths resulting from anti-government protests in the Oromia region, but accused anti-peace forces of being responsible. What does he think he is, Donald Trump? Hundreds of people have been killed in protests in the Oromia region, which surrounds the capital, Addis Ababa, since last November. The protests began among members of the Oromo ethnic group, that's the majority ethnicity in Ethiopia, against plans to expand the capital's territory, which the Oromos feared would result in the forced ev eviction of farmers and loss of farming land. Now, that only happens if the Olympics come in. The Ethiopian security forces have cracked down on the protests. Human Rights Watch claims in January at least 140 people have been killed. The Prime Minister has apologized. Sorry about the killings. The British actor Lawrence Fox has apologized for stopping his performance and swearing at a heckler during a play in London this week. 
the TV and stage star, member of the famous Fox acting family, not owned by Rupert Murdoch. He's married to a uh, former actor in Doctor Who, became distracted by an audience member in the front row while on stage in a production at London's Park Theatre. Near the end of the performance, he reportedly said to the heckler, I won't bother telling you the story, be- oh no, to the audience, I won't bother telling you the story because this C-blank-blank-T in the front row has ruined it for everybody. Then he stormed off stage. Fox said he was very upset by the outburst, which came at a seminal point of the play in which he portrays former French President Charles de Gaulle. Can I just start by apologizing to the other 199 people in the theater for my use of language? He said in an appearance on a program on BBC Radio 4, which shall go nameless. It was a very emotional part of the play. I was very upset about it, and I'm upset about how I behaved. He said the patrons started muttering and heckling earlier in the evening. It eventually became so loud and impossible to deal with. In hindsight, however, Fox wishes he had handled the situation the way his father advised him to do. He told him to prepare a little speech and address disruptive audience members politely. It's a good idea. I wish I'd known that when I was performing at that very same theater in North London uh, about three years ago three, four years ago, in a play, not a play about Charles de Gaulle. And uh, it's, a, it's a thrust stage, which means the audience is surrounding you on three sides, and the stage is not that high off the floor of the theater itself. So there was a guy who started the show by having, in the front row, who had his feet up on the stage. We're in, you know, we're in, a, we're in a play. We're pretending to be in a living room. He's got his feet up on the stage. Okay, that's enough. Of that, and then you know their cell phones go off and everything. But in the middle of Act Two, very dramatic, you know, like this guy had very dramatic scene. Uh, same audience member gets up. I guess he had not, he'd misused his intermission time, and he now had to make a beeline for the men's room. And I mean a beeline. He made a diagonal cut right across the stage. Got up on the stage, walked right across it to uh, get to do his business. No, I did not call him a C blank blank T. Because the apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And that is going to conclude this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The USN 440 cable system in Japan. Around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived whenever you want at harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com, available as a free podcast from Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, tunein.com. And it'd be just like not having to say the T word for another week if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. We close. This broadcast with a tip of the show chapeau to the late Keith Emerson. I was thrilled to share a stage with him at London's Wembley Arena in 2009. Bye, Keith. We'll miss you. address for this broadcast 
playlist of the music heard here on your chance to buy Cars I Talk t-shirts available at harryshearer.com. And I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station for the Change is Easy Radio Network. Tip of the show chapeau also to Jenny Lawson and at WWNO and Pam Halstead. So long from the home of the homeless. <laughs>